So there's great power in a name. Bill Fulov preached on Peter's confession of Christ a couple of weeks ago and discussed this idea. There's great power in a name. It changes how you relate to others and how others relate to you. I have uh, a few names. The first name, certainly, when I am here, my, my name is Reverend James. The Reverend James Forsyth. Nice. I like it. Um, that's, yeah, it's one of my names. It's maybe, if you'll forgive me for saying, it's maybe one of my uh, sort of less favorite names when you're talking to someone and you meet them for the first time and they ask you what you do and you say that you're a pastor, that you're a reverend. There's kind of this kind of like instant kind of, oh, fun time over. <laughs> you know, the name reverend, you have certain assumptions that come along with it. Some of them true, some of them really not true, okay? Um, however... When I go home today and spend time with my kids, you know, they don't call me reverend, okay? Uh, they call me dad. That is my name to them. I am, I am dad, and that's a name that I'm uh, much happier about and embrace wholeheartedly. Uh, a third name I have this fall is the name of coach. I am coaching my son's uh, soccer team, and that, that has been a lot of fun to spend time with these wee kids and uh, teach them about different things, and, and they all call me coach. My son calls me coach dad, uh, which is great. Maybe I should have him call me coach reverend dad. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> so there are these different names that we have, and they change uh, how we relate to people and how people relate to us. Now, there's actually a surprising amount of similarity or commonality between uh, the names that I have, but there are differences as well. I, I am your pastor, and so I'm not your dad. If I call you up tonight and say, stop watching TV, it's time for bed, right? That's not going to go down so well. I'm not your coach. If on the way out of the sanctuary this morning I say, get down and give me 20, right? Um, that's not going to go over so well. Why? Because you relate to me as, as pastor. I'm not your father or uh, your coach. At the same time, there's much, uh, many things that are, that are positive about these names. Because I am your pastor, when I meet with you or visit with you or come see you in the hospital, there is a bond, there is a relationship that exists between pastor and people. That's a glorious and, and joyful thing. Uh, my name is Dad. When I am able to scoop up my children and tell them not to be afraid of this, that, or the next thing. That is meaningful to them because I am their dad. When, as a coach, when I put my arm around a player who's having a hard day and tell him he's, he's doing great and he should keep on going, that's a meaningful thing because I relate to him as coach. These names are, are meaningful. Changes how we relate to others and how others relate to us. The book of Hebrews, as we saw last week, was written to a group of believers living in the first century who faced many challenges of heart and mind. They are figuring out how to live the Christian life in light of many hardships, many temptations, in light of religious pluralism. They lived in a difficult day, a world that was not that far from our own. Into this context of hardship, the writer of Hebrews comes and speaks of Christ. The absolute supremacy, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus. The gospel solution is not to say things in your life aren't that bad. You're, you're getting worked up about something that's not that big a deal. The gospel solution is to say Jesus is so much more. It's not that you should take your life less seriously. It's that you should take Jesus more seriously. And that's what the author of the Hebrews does. He writes to us to build up Christ in our hearts and in our minds, that we would see him as far outshining, far surpassing, far outweighing all the difficulties and struggles of this life. 
In chapter 1, he did this by exalting Christ. He encouraged us in our faith because Jesus is God. And last week, we looked at seven reasons why Jesus is so much more valuable than we realize. We see this grand, exalted picture of Christ reigning and ruling supreme from the heavens itself. This week, the author has a different tack. He comes to us and he doesn't encourage us because Christ is exalted, but he encourages us because Christ has uh, bent on one knee, done more than that, come to this earth in flesh and blood. We are encouraged chapter one because Jesus is God, but we are encouraged chapter two because Jesus is human. And because he is human, because of the incarnation, incarnation means taking upon himself flesh. We think of chili con carne, right? Chili con with carne flesh, right? Incarnation, Jesus in flesh, right? That's what incarnation means. Jesus has come as a person, physical body, flesh and blood. And because he has done this, we can experience him with three new names. We can call him our brother, We can call him our savior. We can call him our friend. And these are the hooks that we're going to work through uh, together this morning. Our brother uh, who likes us, our savior who frees us, and our friend who gets us. Before we dive into those points, though, let's look at a couple points of of context to orient ourselves to uh, this text. Two things to draw out. Uh, First one is is very obvious, uh, coming from verses 6 through 8. God made us. And it's been testified somewhere, uh, obviously, when the author is writing, the, the Bible does not have chapters and verses at this time, so he just refers to, you know, it has been, tested, it has been written uh, somewhere. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So God made us. The psalmist is reflecting upon the immensity of God's creative work on the cosmic scale. Read Psalm 8 and and soak all of this in. He is uh, reflecting upon the greatness and the grandeur of all that God has done in his creative work. And then he stops at this section of the psalm to really uh, marvel at the unique dignity that God gave to men and women as part of that creation. He's really echoing early Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The reason that we have been crowned with this glory and with this honor is that God has created us in his image. He has created us in a sense to be like him. And that makes humanity, that makes men and women unique amongst all of creation. It separates us from the rest of nature, from all the other creatures. We have been crowned with glory and honor because we have been made like him. More than this, the psalmist psalmist reflects and the author of Hebrews quotes that uh, God has put everything in subjection under our feet. Again, referring back to early Genesis where God says, Let them, man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. God placed humanity in this position of of stewardship in creation, in this position of, of dominion over all creation. 
And so uh, the material world has been given to us to fashion and shape and explore and enjoy. We are to have that satisfaction of of making something with our hands, that uh, satisfaction of going for a walk after dinner, that satisfaction of sipping your favorite wine. The material world has been given to us to have dominion uh, over Likewise, God gave us work. We are to be stewards of uh, creation and culture. We are to pursue our vocations. We are to pursue justice. We are to pursue the common good. The Lord has given us dominion over these things. In Genesis, we also see God giving us dominion over relationships. We have this gift of marriage, this gift of children, of uh, friendships and other relationships. And we are to uh, flourish together. We are to explore these things together. We are to enjoy one another and build one another up. The Lord has uh, created humanity in this unique place amongst creation and then charged us to have a stewardship over his world. Then, though, comes the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. God created us to have this position of dominion and stewardship, but as things are, we don't, we don't see this as a reality. This is echoing the fall of Genesis 3, where God's good purpose was for us to have joyful dominion over the world, subject only to God, and yet we have fallen from that state. Due to sin, this purpose of God has not been fully realized. And when we look out at our world, this is very clear to us. We think of the material world. God gave us dominion over the material world, but now the material world has dominion over us, greed and desire and power. We think of work. God gave us dominion over work, but now work so often has dominion over us our reputations, our selfish ambition, our desire for power and control. Our relationships, God gave us a dominion over relationships and now so often relationships have dominion over us. Of jealousy, we think of manipulation, of the wide variety of sexual temptation and sins. These things that we were given mastery over now have mastery over us. These things that we were to steward now steward us. These things that we were to rule over now rule over us. God created us, the psalmist says, and the author to Hebrews quotes, with the sense of great dignity to rule over this world, that things are not as he intended them to be. It's the first point in our context. God made us. Secondly, because things are not intended, not as they were intended to be, God made Jesus like us. God made us, and then God made Jesus like us. This idea is introduced in verse 9. Look with me where we read that Jesus, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. This idea is then developed in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. As we walk around with flesh and blood, so Jesus took to himself a physical body with physical flesh and physical blood, leaving the glory and the splendor and the beauty and the perfection and all that was in heaven itself to come and walk upon this earth. God made us and then God made Jesus like us. He is incarnate and because he is incarnate, we can experience him as a brother, savior, friend. Let's look at these three things together. First of all, because of the incarnation, we can experience Jesus as a brother who likes us. Look with me at verse 11 where this idea begins. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, 
and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one origin. So the one who sanctifies, the one who makes us more holy, the one who makes us more like Christ, the one who makes us all that we were ever intended to be by his grace and his spirit, this one Jesus, and those who are sanctified, those who are being made holy, those who are being made more like Christ, those who are growing into all that they were ever intended to be, are from one origin. This is a phrase that means they are of, of one family. They, they come from the same stock, we could say. That Jesus and ourselves are of the same clan, the same tribe, the same family. As a result, end of verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We are in his family. We then get three Old Testament quotations in verse 12 that emphasize Christ's solidarity with us. And so the idea here is, yes, chapter 1 is true. Jesus is grand, he is high, and he is exalted. But chapter 2 is true as well. He is drawn near. You're part of his family, and he calls you a brother. There is a closeness, an intimacy here that Jesus is trying to communicate to us. I don't know if you have brothers. Do you have brothers or or sisters? Uh, I have a younger brother. He's nine years younger than me. So uh, as I grew up uh, in Edinburgh, we had a very close-knit family, and uh, my uncles were really like uh, big brothers to me. They're eight, nine, ten years older than me, and we had a a really close uh, relationship as we grew up. And they they really poured into me. Uh, They're the ones who sort of took me to sporting events, I remember one uncle is the guy who taught me how to fish. Uh, ones who took me to movies, they took me to see Ghostbusters. Remember that? If that's not a formative life event, I don't know what is. Um, they took me to eat all the places my parents wouldn't. You know, McDonald's and ice cream and just filled me with, you know, rubbish the whole time. Um, we, I stayed over at their house. You know how cool that is when you're eight? Do you know how cool it is to get a stay over with your with your your big brother type uncle. I I just loved those guys. They were so good to me. And it was so clear to me as I grew up, the sort of sense of security or approval that I had with them. They were so awesome because they never made me feel like that annoying kid. And I was, you know, I was that annoying kid. Uh, I remember sitting in the stands of a soccer match on my uncle's shoulders eating chips and all the crumbs were going in his hair. (laughs) Um... I remember coughing and spluttering after, as he would, he would swim in the pool and I'd just hang on his shoulders, you know. Um, I remember him uh, like carrying me home after a, a late, it was probably like nine o'clock, but a late night uh, after being out somewhere, you know. They, they, they did all these things for me and never made me feel uh, like a burden to me. And so I wanted to be just like them. They were great. They're uh, big, fun, kind, compassionate, great men. And what they liked, I liked. I wanted to be just like them. I had this brotherly relationship with them. Do do you have people in your life like that? People in your life that you just had a sense of approval and affirmation from? People in your life that you wanted to be just like? More poignantly, did you have people in your life that you wished you could have had that kind of relationship with? A brother, a father, so on you long for that sense of intimacy with, but never quite came about. In the incarnation, Jesus has come and he has drawn near to us as our loving brother. A brother we want to be just like. 
He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He is not ashamed to claim us as his own. He is not ashamed to be associated with us. And so we come to him, and no matter what we've done, we don't just come to God as enthroned on high. We, we do that, but we also come to him and approach him as, as a brother, who no matter what our shames, no matter what our regrets, no matter what our guilts, no matter what is that thing that you hold deep within yourself that you, you know, you've done or you've thought that you wouldn't even tell to other people. Jesus knows these things, and yet you're able still to come to him as your brother who cares for you. Or as a believer, if you have come to Christ, it's, it's a funny thing as, as Christians that you sort of have to accept that Jesus loves you. It's sort of part of the deal, you know. But a lot of us have a really hard time accepting that he likes you. Yeah, he loves you, and he's up there in heaven, and he, he does, he loves you. But he loves you with a bit of frustration. He loves you with a real sort of sense of disappointment. He loves you with a furrowed brow, you know? He loves you because he kind of has to. He loves you like my second grade teacher loved me. (laughs) And that's not how Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you like a brother. Jesus is proud to call you his own. He is proud that you are his and he is yours. And he is excited about that relationship with you. So as we approach God, we don't just approach him as enthroned on heaven and high. We approach him as he has come to us in flesh, as a brother who likes you. Feel the love of Christ, but feel the kindness of Christ, the approval of Christ, the fact that he likes you because he has come in flesh and blood. So because of the incarnation, we experience Jesus as a brother who likes you. Secondly, because of the incarnation, we also experience Jesus as a savior who frees you. We experience Jesus as a savior who frees you. Let's look again at the text together. A couple of things to pull out. First of all, we see in our text that Jesus had to be human in order to be our savior, in order to be our substitute. Verse 9, we read that he died so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This great substitutionary work where he hangs upon the cross in our place, where he takes the guilt of the world, my guilt, your guilt, my shame, your shame upon himself as he substitutes for us. He he could not have achieved this work and accomplished it for us had he not come in human flesh. His incarnation is what qualifies him, if you like, to stand in our place, to be our representative, to be our substitute. It's no longer apples and oranges. It's apples and apples because he has been made like us. His substitutionary work on our behalf required him to be made human. More than this, and somewhat obviously in a sense, verse 14, Jesus came that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus couldn't be our savior unless he took upon flesh and blood. Because if he did not take on flesh and blood, he could not die. You understand, Jesus, this one enthroned in heaven, had to come down in a form that we could kill. He can't come down like he did at Sinai in Exodus 20 with a showing of glory that was so fearsome that if you even saw his face, you would die. 
He can come down like the vision in Isaiah 6 where his glory fills the temple and Isaiah is undone by the beauty of the Lord and realizes his own unworthiness and inadequacy. He, he can't come down like he appears in Revelation 1 as this a picture of, of, of power and, and might, a, a picture so fearsome that John wants to fall on his face as if dead. No, he had to come with flesh that we could tear. And with blood that we could shed. He had to come in a form that we could kill in order to pay the penalty that we deserve. The incarnation is necessary for him to be our savior. Reflecting on this theme, uh, one preacher illustrates with the story of Kitty Genovese, who was uh, murdered in New York City in 1964 young woman making her way home from work one day. She was attacked about 100 feet from her apartment and she cried out, my God, he has stabbed me. Help me, help me. The response to her screams were that some neighbors turned their lights on and looked out of their windows. The startled attacker ran away. Um, the numbers, there are disputes over the numbers, but somewhere between a dozen and 38 witnesses saw this event. Uh, but no one came down to help her. Uh, One witness said he was afraid and he didn't want to get involved. Uh, Seeing the inactivity that followed, the attacker came back, went round to the back of the alley where she had crawled uh, looking for safety, Uh, robbed her of the $49 that was in her purse and killed her lying there. The message of the incarnation is that Jesus hears our cries and he wants to get involved. And he doesn't just turn on the lights, he comes on down. And he doesn't just risk his life, he lays it down. So that we, the people who deserve this death, need not fear it because he has taken it upon himself. We do not have a God to reach through religion or through appeasement or through ethics. We have a God who has come down to us. Why? Verse 14 and 15, to free us. Jesus took on flesh and blood that through death he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death in our culture, I mean, obviously it's it's the definition of a morbid uh, topic. And in our culture, it's a, it's a topic that we stay well away from. Jeffrey Gorer, the English anthropologist, said, the truth of the matter is that death has replaced sex as the forbidden subject of conversation in polite society. We do all that we can to keep death at arm's length. We even dress up our dead bodies in clothes and makeup to try and make them look a little less dead. And yet, when the reality of death does break into our experience, perhaps through the loss of a loved one, perhaps this week as we remembered the anniversary of 9-11, perhaps as we take a stroll through the monuments or cemeteries that our city is blessed with, confronted with the reality of death, we do find that we're afraid. Afraid of the pain, afraid of the loss, afraid of the unknown. The message of the incarnation, the message of this chapter of Hebrews is that Jesus has come down. 
that Jesus has taken our fears upon himself, that he has taken death upon his own body. It's a very novel way to deal with our fears. You need not fear this because I am going uh, through it uh, for you. And what was the result? I love this. Death just wasn't enough for him. It couldn't keep him down. Its sting was not sufficient. He had victory over it. This great, intimate, ultimate fear of ours didn't have enough to beat him. And so Jesus rises again. And in our relationship with him, through our union with him, our fear of death is taken away. The pain of death becomes a passing moment. The loss of death ushers us into the gain of eternity. The unknownness of it becomes a thing where, you know, our brother has been there and he'll guide us through. Death is um, unmasked. Death is the, the, the enchantment is broken because Christ has been there and suffered it on our behalf. So we need no longer fear. Because of the incarnation, yes, we approach Jesus as a brother who likes us, but we approach him as a savior who frees us. Thirdly, and lastly, because of the incarnation, we experience Jesus as a friend who gets us. A brother who likes us, a savior who frees us, and a friend who gets us. Because of the incarnation, we experience Jesus as a friend who gets us. Last week, again, we focused upon the greatness and the grandeur of Christ, and uh, this week, we're focusing on the fact that he is not up there in a detached uh, way. Look with me again at verse uh, 17 and 18. Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, uh, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One of our most sort of intrinsic human desires is the desire to be understood, to know that someone gets us. It's an incredibly lonely and isolating feeling when you find yourself in a place where no one understands. Likewise, when you're in a situation where you feel you're being misunderstood, it creates a lot of frustration and a lot of resentment and a lot of anger, surprisingly quickly. There's great power in being understood. I remember in uh, 2011, it was just a hard year for me. It was just a hard year for me, personally and spiritually. Uh, my own thorns in my flesh, my own angst, my own issues. Uh, you have yours, I have mine. We're in this mess together. And I was really struggling with one of these um, and sort of working through it when a friend of mine came over. And uh, he's sort of friend and mentor, and he's a fun, gregarious, really successful guy who I just have a lot of uh, admiration and respect for. And I began to share with him some of these uh, stresses, some of these anxieties. And it was amazing what happened because I had a little bit of just, you know, it's awkward to lay yourself bare. And that's a hard thing to do. And I wasn't sure he'd understand. And I told him, and he sort of looked back and had this big smile on his face. And I was like, don't smile at my bad stuff. (laughs) And then he proceeded to tell me how uh, his experience of several years before had almost mirrored step for step what I was walking through. Um, I was a mess. He was a mess. He was maybe more of a mess. right? And there was great freedom being understood like that? Great freedom in knowing, oh yeah, I'm not 
off the reservation. I'm not completely weird. Um, or at the very least, I'm off the reservation with you and we're completely weird together, right? <laughs> Great power in being understood. And in the incarnation, we read that Jesus is made like us. How is he made like us? In every respect. Made like us in every respect, undergoing the entire range of human emotions. Do not think in that, that we have some new, novel, fancy culture where we just experience a whole lot of things that Jesus doesn't understand. It's a very culturally arrogant position to take that our world is so new and novel. Jesus underwent the full range of human emotions, the uh, joy and the frustration and the disappointment. Can you imagine what life living with the disciples was like? What a group. You're the perfect savior of the world and you have to live with these guys, right? Um, Imagine how he feels about us too, right? And yet, uh, in that, he had kindness and love. Experiencing, though, that full range of human emotions, experiencing the full range of, of physical circumstances, whether that's hunger or tiredness, or pain. Can you imagine the, the busyness uh, of his schedule? You know, the busy, the, the, you know, being the savior of the world was, a, was not an easy task, right? And Jesus went through all that, and he endured all that, and he endured that death so that we know he has experienced that with us. He experienced, we read in this text, the full range of temptations, and to fear, to gossip, to anger. Can you imagine how much Satan must have pursued Christ? How much Satan wanted Christ to sin. He experienced all of that with us. He experienced, this text tells us, our suffering. He endured all the miseries of this life and is able to understand when we ourselves are in these situations. We read that he was made perfect through suffering. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea that it would have been glorious for God to save us um, from on high in a detached way. But there's something much more glorious about the fact that he dealt with our pain by entering into ourselves. He dealt with our suffering by taking it upon himself. He became the perfect savior by navigating these things with us. And so the scary thing, whether whether you say you're a Christian or not this morning, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus gets you better than you get yourself. He gets your insecurity. He gets your pride. He gets your, your uh, cynicism. Uh, he gets your hopes. He gets your dreams. He gets your fears. We are often on a kind of journey of self-understanding, trying to figure out exactly what makes us tick. That's largely what my 2011 was about. But Jesus already knows. Jesus already knows. And so as we approach him, we approach him, yes, as a brother who likes us, as a savior who frees us, but also as a friend who gets us. We take the things of life to him and we say, Lord, you know, you know. I'm figuring it out, but you understand me. And I draw near to you and feel the warmth of being with one who understands. Two closing applications. Uh, First of all, uh, let me uh, jump very briefly to verse 3. We've seen this savior painted before us in chapter one as the God and king of all creation in chapter two as the man who has drawn near. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you haven't put your faith in Christ, I want to know 
what else are you looking for? What else are you waiting for? What else could he be or do that would convince you to put your faith in him? Because he has the power and the sovereignty and the control and the might and yet the tenderness and the compassion and the love and the care to meet your every need in this life and the life to come. There's no better gospel. And the author of the Hebrews tells us, as I said last week, that we have been given a day which is called today when we can come to faith in Christ. This is your savior. He can be your brother, your friends. If you have accepted these things, I love the words of verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Phrase drift away is a great phrase because I think for, for many of us in our walk with Christ, that's what we do. We don't necessarily have those moments of conscious rebellion. Sometimes we do. That's for another sermon. Um, Sometimes it's more that just slowly and subtly we just lose focus. We get more wrapped up with the things of the day, more wrapped up with the activities of the week, and drift away from this one who is ours. But let us not do that. Let us pay close attention to him, enthroned on heaven and drawn near to us in flesh. Let us not drift away, because in him we have everything. Not our reverend, not our dad, not our coach, but our brother, our savior, our friend. Let's pray together. Lord of all creation, you have bent your knee and drawn near to us in flesh and blood so that we may worship you as king and we may savor you as brother, savior, friend. Lord, this is indeed... (laughs) a great salvation and I pray that each of us would respond to it as long as it is called today not neglecting it but paying careful attention to it may we approach you as this text calls us to and may we find in you our all in all these things we pray in Jesus perfect and matchless name Amen